0: Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you And
1: if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously.
0: Scholarship should cultivate the virtues.
1: Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world?
0: If I had to pick my favorite podcast of all time, it would probably be Freakonomics. I can still remember biking to school in high school and listening to the show and just being fascinated by the way that seemingly trivial things like someone's name or just human behavior in general can have such a big impact on economics and on the world around us and all the interesting ways that economics appears in our world. One of the topics that Freakonomics has covered in the past is how we can be most effective with our giving um, and other ideas relating to poverty and inequality. And these are some topics that I have a personal interest in, as well as economics. So when I found out that there was a professor at Santa Clara named Bill Sundstrom, who was researching the economics of poverty and inequality, I knew that I wanted to interview him for this show. Professor Sundstrom discovered his love for economics in college by combining his analytical and scientific side with his love for studying human behavior. He now teaches courses in data analytics, econometrics, and some interesting classes, including the economics of race, ethnicity, and gender, as well as economic history and economics of the environment. I had some big questions for Professor Sundstrom around ways that we should think about poverty and inequality and if there's any hope, if there's anything we can do. And while in the p- current political climate, it is difficult to propel these issues forward and make progress on things like inequality. And it can just seem like every individual plays such a small part and there's no hope But Professor Sundstrom combines an economist's data-driven pragmatism with a hopeful view on the future. All right, that's all I have. Please enjoy this conversation. I'm excited to be here today with Professor Bill Sundstrom. And we'll get into some of your research and some of my questions about economics and poverty and inequality and that sort of thing. But I'd love to start out by asking about gardening and native plants and kind of what uh, what about those interests you and how'd you get interested in those? Now, how did you gardens? find out I'm interested in those? Did I, I, I saw it, I saw it on, <laughs> online and I actually saw on your blog too, a lot of pictures of yeah, yeah, plants and yeah, stuff yeah. like yeah. that. Well,
1: I'm an old uh, nature buff from way back. So, mm-hmm. I, I grew up in a family where we did a lot of hiking and spent summers, whole summers camping around the country and so uh so I've always enjoyed just being out in the natural world and you know, I have a little bit of a, a, a science, interest in some scientific issues as well. And so those things kind of came together and then it, it turns out uh, here in California, once I had a little you know, yard of my own, uh, starting to think about you know what should should go in a yard and and uh, what's consistent with uh, the kind of climate that we live in. And I have a, a colleague of mine, Helen Popper, Professor Popper is in the econ department, who's very active in the California Native Plant Society and actually published a book on gardening with California native plants. So she kind of got me interested in gardening with native plants uh, some time ago. So it's uh, it's it's been fun. I I'm I, I'm what I refer to as a Darwinian gardener. So whatever gets put into the ground kind of has to survive on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that's been great. And what's really nice about native plant gardening is that you it, it has a nice synergy with being out on a trail and you see mm-hmm. some some plants and you say oh I planted one of those in my garden and look there it is you know in, in situ uh, growing somewhere up in the in the foothills or something. So mm-hmm. it's it's that's mm-hmm. uh, been a fun you know sort of sideline for me Mm
0: -hmm. do you have any favorite hiking spots in the area uh
1: well i do a lot of hiking just kind of locally so um you know a couple of my favorite places are some of the open space preserves Mm -hmm. that we have around here windy hill is a really nice uh hike up from the bottom uh, up to the top of the hill and back down um and then i try to get up to the sierras a couple times every Mm -hmm. summer um either yosemite or uh, some other areas, Carson Pass area, a lot of a lot of nice flowers up at Carson Pass. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, get it, get out as much as I can.
0: Yeah, backing up a little bit. What did you think you were going to do for a career when you were college age?
1: Yeah, so I, um, I come from a, a family of academics. My uh, father is a retired professor of chemical engineering, actually, at the University of Connecticut. And so, you know, for me, it was kind of natural, actually, to think about possibly going into being uh, an academic, a professor. So that was always on my radar screen. I, as an undergraduate at the University of Massachusetts, I, for a time, toyed with the idea of becoming a journalist. I was actually uh, the editor of the college paper for a year, and that was uh, pretty exciting. Um, I, I was in in the back of my mind that I probably wouldn't end up doing that and would probably end up going to grad school. Um, I initially was intending to be something more in the natural sciences like a biochemist was sort of in my mind and, until I hit organic chemistry lab and uh it turns out unlike my father who's uh <laughs> very adept at these things I was all thumbs in the in the lab so uh that and 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 then sort of getting bitten by the the social science bug from some of my coursework uh, that's where I ended up going and I after I graduated I did work for like 6 months at a local newspaper as kind of just a regular local beat reporter and that was enough to convince me <laughs> that mm. I'd be happier uh, continuing in school and and uh, going on to be a professor so mm. um, and economics was turned out to be a great a great choice for me because I did become quite interested in sort of the, the human side of things and mm-hmm. the social sciences but econ for somebody like me who likes math and is you know comfortable with modeling mm-hmm. uh, it's a nice mix of mm-hmm. of sort of the the sciencey side and some of the more human uh, elements. So that mm-hmm. was that was a great sort of choice for me.
0: Mm-hmm. What were some of those human type questions that you got interested in? That um, and how how'd you kind of start getting interested in your current like research topics? I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, I was I was pretty. Um, Politically radicalized as an undergraduate. So I come from a Republican, a family of Republicans, um, sort of what we used to call moderate to, to liberal Republicans. They don't necessarily exist anymore, but, um, that was my parents. And, um, but when I got to the University of Massachusetts, uh, was a period there's a lot of, uh, this was in the '70s, and it was sort of the post '60s anti-war radicalism, but a lot of uh, awareness growing of things like women's rights and um, and racial inequities, as well as the, the modern environmental movement. So a lot of those things uh, kind of spurred my interest. Um, uh, and so that when I when I went, ended up in grad school, my my research because of some of the faculty where I went. Um, Kind of moved in the direction of economic history, which is looking at historical issues uh, and data from an economic lens. Uh, But there, a lot of my interests were in things like labor issues, um, how the employment relationship worked in the past in the United States, how it evolved over time. Mm -hmm. Um, So it kind of tied into some of my sort of, I I guess it's a long-running interest in social justice issues Hmm. and and economic justice issues that sort of informs my interests over the years.
0: Yeah. One of the bigger areas I'm curious about is income inequality. And, you know, you hear all kinds of statistics about the proportion of wealth that the 1% owns in the United States and how difficult it is for people in the bottom to kind of move up. So what are What are some ways that you you like to think about it? And is there anything we can do to help as normal people?
1: Yeah. Well, so there's uh, obviously a huge, huge set of issues. Um, I think, you know, it, it helps to think clearly about what are some of the distinctions between the things we talk about. So, for example, there's income inequality, which we think of as the divide between the rich and the poor, say. And and in the United States, as you mentioned, there's been an incredible concentration of income and wealth at the top since, you know, roughly the 1980s. And this was, you know, it's received a lot of uh, attention recently, but economists have known about the trend for some time. That to me is... A related but distinct issue from the questions related to poverty. So, so you know, the fact that the there's a the very rich have kind of pulled away from the rest of society, um, kind of a modern gilded age, is a distinct phenomenon from the kind of stagnation of the low, you know, at the low income end of things. Um, and then, of course, there's all the global inequality issues, right? So, so we've we're in a world now that's an incredible flux in terms of the global income distribution on the one hand there's you know you could say globally as well as in you know within a country like the United States the divide between the rich and the poor has been has been growing but the reduction of poverty in many parts of the developing world has been quite dramatic so so it's the picture I think at a global scale is is kind of mixed in the United States I think we really you know, have a lot to be concerned about with the with this with this divide. It's um, it's a reversal of uh, you know a trend over the past century. The economy became much more equalized and provided a lot of uh, a lot more opportunity to the kind of the masses of the United States. And in the last few decades, we've really seen a reversal of that. And so, so that's that's a. a an important set of concerns, you know, what to do about it, I think, partly hinges on what, what one thinks the the causes of the problems are, uh, although, uh, you know, economists, we tend to sometimes think there might be one set of causes and another set of solutions that one could look at. But, um, you know, I guess as, a, as an economic historian, I'm always inclined to think that very large social phenomena tend to have, you know, multiple causes. And I, I think that's the case for, for rising inequality. Well, I could go into <laughs> mm-hmm. a lot of sort of potential approaches to 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 getting around the problem. Some of those have to do with sort of upping the skill levels of people who you know are low paid for mm-hmm. for reasons of of having you know skills that are under or low valued in the economy and then there's sort of more redistributive sort of policies where the government could step in and you know tax progressively and and uh transfer. Income from from high income to low income, mm-hmm. and um, you know, again, I think probably some some mix of those policies is is probably a good thing. Which ones are politically feasible in the present climate? I think is another you know mm-hmm. really difficult question.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think well things will just continue to get worse, or is there any hope that this inequality can be like reversed at all?
1: Um, You know, I think there are signs of a kind of a rejuvenation of progressive politics in the United States that would favor a more sort of egalitarian distribution of income. But the current political equilibrium is very difficult. Uh, There's a, you know, there's a huge amount of polarization. There's a lot of difficulty getting any kind of traction on a variety of policies. Mm -hmm. A lot of the strength of the kind of pro-equality uh, forces in the United States historically, I think, were allied with things like the labor union movement and the, at least in the private sector, of the United States labor unions have been in, you know, incredible decline over the past decades. Um, so it's not clear to me where the political momentum, you know, would come from for mm-hmm. as, as a force for, for sort of progressive uh, change. And then we, we do face just a, a whole slew of uncertainties that uh, surround things like technological change, artificial intelligence, Mm -hmm. you know, so there's a lot of debate going on within economics right now about the extent to which, um, artificial intelligence and, and related technologies are going to, you know, possibly severely exacerbate the, Mm -hmm. the inequality problem, or maybe, maybe not. Um, it's pretty hard to know.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then you, you mentioned that poverty was kind of a separate, issue than inequality but how like like if some if a student was really interested in reducing poverty like what are some either career paths or steps or organizations or political ideas that uh, that kind of support yeah yeah
1: well i think there we you know we we kind of underestimate the importance of a lot of policies that we already have uh available in the united states that mitigate the poverty problem um, and those you know usually come under the heading of the social safety net kind of idea so for example right in the in the news the last couple weeks there's been talk about the um, food stamps program uh, so-called SNAP and whether there should be a work requirement for example f- or a strong more strenuous work requirement for people to qualify for food stamps and, you know, I, th- I think a lot of Americans don't really appreciate how important some of those kinds of programs really are for reducing the incidence of very severe poverty in the United States. So we have, you know, a, a fair number of people in the U.S. Who, whose incomes, cash incomes are ex- extremely low, mm-hmm. uh, their earned incomes. And so there's a variety of programs from Medicaid to food stamp assistance to the earned income tax credit that really help low income families significantly to avoid the sort of the worst depths of poverty. So I would say if if I were, you know, if a student was asking me, well w- what could we do about poverty in the United States? One thing is to appreciate and and protect the the kinds of policy protections mm-hmm. we have for folks and and I think whatever you think of whether adults are the deserving poor or the undeserving poor, you know, this mm-hmm. whole question of work requirements, etc. cetera. Um, Children are are, really are innocents and so poor children, you know, need to have food. So I guess, you know, to me there's sort of bottom line justice Mm -hmm. issues that have to do with, with supporting families. And we have a lot of evidence now that those kinds of basic family income supports are quite important for child development and, and sort of later in life success. So mm-hmm. there's a, there's a growing body of evidence that's sort of tracking people over long periods mm-hmm. of time. And we find those things are really important. So it's the, the future of the society, let alone the particular individuals is really depends on some of those things and then i you know i think so strengthening those kinds of programs would be important um there's debate of course among economists about policies like minimum wages but you know making work pay in one way or another for for low income folks is seems to be important um and then you know i think there's a whole host of longer run developmental issues that that we we could uh, look at so early childhood education. We mm-hmm. know that the you know the the earlier that we intervene to help kids develop skills mm-hmm. and resources, uh, the better off they'll be in the long run. There's kind of a rolling dynamic of you know education begetting education mm-hmm. um, that that helps people in the long run. So so those are all kinds of policy issues in there, and then I, I've had some association over the last few years with. Um, a local network of organizations called Step Up Silicon Valley that's uh, came out of uh, the local Catholic Charities organization, but it's a network of a variety of different nonprofits and governmental organizations that are trying to coordinate their assistance to, to help people get out of low-income situations. And so I think getting involved in, you know, there's a, just a variety of different Places one could get involved mm-hmm. in the in the nonprofit or or f- philanthropic sectors that that could be very helpful Whether it's you know from early childhood edu- education to rental assistance um, to helping folks uh, Who have been involved with the criminal justice system? Mm-hmm. There's a whole variety of immigrants um, Undocumented folks lots of places to kind of mm-hmm.
0: get in there mm-hmm. Yeah one one other Topic that you've done some work with is kind of racial differences Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. discrimination in, in employment. So, what have you found anything there that's kind of surprised you, or what have been some of the most interesting, like results or things that you've learned about racial differences in employment?
1: Yeah, well, you know, a lot of that's kind of depressing Mm. (laughs) uh, to learn about. So, for example, you know, one area that I was interested in, uh, this was a a few years ago that I did some work with a a colleague over at UC Santa Cruz on the unemployment rate differential between African Americans and white Americans, and it's just um, really striking how Persistent, the differential is that the the the, that the unemployment rates for for Black Americans has tended to sort of be at around double the the rate for for whites for quite some time, um, and that of course is compounded by differences in in income and wealth holdings. Um, so these are very. Uh, hard problems, it's pretty clear that there's a lot of evidence of just sort of active discrimination in labor markets that Mm -hmm. that persists in spite of various protections like the Civil Rights Act Mm -hmm. and and Equal Employment Law and various protections. Um, So we we have some some challenges there just in terms of sort of enforcing the equal opportunity laws that we have. Um, And I think, you know, one also has to take seriously that there are communities uh, of color that have been really struggling with kind of concentrated poverty in those kinds of environments have created uh, real challenges for certain subsets of, of folks. You know, one thing that is not my my research, but I think there's been some very interesting work just recently about class divisions within race, racial and ethnic groups as well as across. So, we, you know, on the one hand, uh, we know that uh, race is correlated with economic class in the United States. So certainly it's you're more likely to be in uh, a less advantaged economic socioeconomic status if you're um, uh, from a historically disadvantaged group like African Americans or uh, Latino Americans um, But we're also the a lot of the sort of general divides in the income distribution, the growing inequality is something that we're seeing within groups as well. So there's, you know, there's evidence of a of a more successful, I don't know what would be the, you know, sort of upwardly mobile upper middle class within mm-hmm. various ethnic minorities, and then folks who are kind of seem to be more trapped in in uh, lower advantaged situations, and so. That that suggests that it's it's not a sort of a single picture. There's a lot of complexity to it, mm-hmm. um, and that I think is something that we've really started to get some better data
0: on and appreciate. Mm-hmm. You've you've been involved in so many research projects over the years. Any like favorites or ones that you particularly enjoyed?
1: Well, those so so that that work on racial differences was you know, quite interesting and, mm-hmm. and important to me um, just from the point of view of my, you know, what sort of motivates me as a scholar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to say I'm currently engaged in something completely different uh, with uh, some colleagues here at Santa Clara University working mm-hmm. on uh, food and water security issues in, in Nicaragua with uh, in a group led by Professor Bacon. You may have mm-hmm. come across him over in environmental studies. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this uh, from the point of view of somebody trained as kind of a you know, pretty standard economics background uh, is working in an interdisciplinary team with someone who's, mm-hmm. you know, basically a political ecologist, kind of does qualitative social science work, mm-hmm. which is what Professor Bacon does. And then uh, his colleague, Iris Stewart-Frey, who's a hydrologist, so she's kind of looking at um, precipitation and water availability measures mm-hmm. and, and especially how they uh, interact with the local geography and an engineer, Ed Mar, who's kind of an expert on climate modeling and mm-hmm. sort of predicting what's going to happen with uh, precipitation and temperatures in, in that part of the world. So it's an attempt to sort of bring together natural and social sciences from a variety of different kind of methodologies and mm-hmm. disciplinary backgrounds to, to bear on some very challenging issues, very, uh, you know, uh, stressed farmers, small-scale farmers, smallholders. Mm-hmm. you know, growing coffee, but also subsistence uh, food crops and the kinds of challenges they're facing, both from the kind of climatological point of view, mm-hmm. but as well as uh, various political and market forces that are, you know, kind of buffeting people. So mm-hmm. it's the... Uh, that's been very interesting and very challenging because mm-hmm. it's you know not everybody thinks like economists <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which mm-hmm. is uh which is uh not a surprise to me but uh but it's just you know the kind of just communicating and figuring out how to integrate ideas from very different um disciplinary perspectives is mm. hugely stimulating and I think I was just at the provost's convocation before we, we started talking, and mm-hmm. that was one point he was sort of highlighting at Santa Clara was the kind of growing interest in trying to cross these disciplinary boundaries and get mm-hmm. researchers, you know, kind of working in those interstices between the disciplines that are um, really important for understanding and coming to grips with a lot of challenges that we face, but also, mm-hmm. um, you know, not the way we're typically trained as academics. So, mm-hmm.
0: so that's, that's been really interesting. Mm-hmm. If you had to start a new interdisciplinary project or research something that you haven't really looked at before, what would you want to try out or learn more about?
1: Oh, I don't know. I, I have a lot of interests in a lot of things. Um, you, you know, I, I'm i interested in, you know, aspects of economics that are um at some of those fringes, so you know, one thing that interests me in terms of the um, issues of economic justice and inequality mm-hmm. is the extent to which those things can be explained by uh, power processes within mm-hmm. the society. So we tend to, as economists, we tend to first look at, you know, prices. So when mm-hmm. I when we say, oh, that person makes a lot of money and that person doesn't make much money. Well, well, how are they making their money? Well, they're selling their services in a labor market, and that person's uh, a neurosurgeon, and their skills are very scarce, and they spend a lot mm-hmm. of time in school getting them, and and so that you know drives the price of those skills up. There's a person who's a low-skilled you know laborer, um, and their skills are abundant, and they don't come with a whole lot of training, and so the the price of their work is low. Um, but i think you know not surprisingly the the world doesn't just work by these kinds of market forces setting prices but that there are power relationships that affect these things um so i was just reading a recent article On uh, what we call monopsony power in labor markets. So, if the person who's hiring you, you know, is the only game in town, Hmm. um, they have a degree of, of power over your employment situation and how much they can pay you. And so, there's a lot of interest in sort of how, you know, this kind of market power as well as political power interacts with, um, with economic outcomes. And um, I think those are all kind of promising ways of thinking about both why low income people sort of struggle to Mm -hmm. have sort of sufficient livelihoods, as well as how it is that sort of economic wealth becomes concentrated, you know, at at, at the very high end. So what are some of the sort of political processes whereby people protect their, you know, their wealth and Mm -hmm. and, and enhance it? so, those are all very large questions, mm-hmm. so I wouldn't say I have a <laughs> a particular approach to those issues yet, mm-hmm. but those are the kinds of things that that certainly interest me
0: yeah well i'd I'd love to wrap up with a couple shorter questions sure, so first of all, is there a favorite place that you've traveled
1: um well, um, a favorite place I've traveled. We were just uh, in Japan for a couple weeks. I'd never been to Japan. Um, you can see that wooden squid that's sitting up in the mm. corner there. I acquired mm. while I was there. That was uh, that was really fun, and I'm hoping I can get back there again sometime. You know, sooner rather than later. Uh, it's a r- really fascinating country historically and, mm. and uh, culturally. Um, and uh, I've been to Italy a few times in various places uh, and. Certainly, uh, that that's been great. Um, so, and then I mostly like like to get up in the up in the mountains, <laughs> walk around and look at lakes. So that's the other thing.
0: Mm-hmm. If uh, if a student was interested in maybe some of the topics we've touched on, whether that's poverty or inequality um, or economics, are there any books that you would highly recommend?
1: Well, you know. That's a that's a great question. I every once in a while read books in these areas, and you know I can't say I'm always that I always find them very, very satisfying. I mean, there was a a big a book that came out a couple years ago. Uh, Spiketti, you may have heard of it. Uh, where did it go? Capital in the twenty first century by Thomas Spiketti, and th- this was really um, an important but very heavy and dense uh, book about the recent research on economic inequality both mm-hmm. within the United States and across countries and lays out a whole lot of the data. He and, and some of his colleagues um, were really, did really important pathbreaking breaking work mm-hmm. uh, on sort of documenting the growing income divide, especially in countries like the United States. And one thing that's fascinating about the work is that he highlights how it's not universal so if you look at sort of northern and western european countries Mm -hmm. um you know scandinavia of course well known as being very egalitarian but even a country like france the recent Concentration of income that we've observed in the United States uh, we don't observe in France And so Piketty's view is that a lot of things are very driven by policy and politics rather than kind of universal economic trends So that's a that but I'm not sure I I could recommend that book to an undergrad in in the sense that it's it is uh, Very dense and and longer Mm -hmm. than than what one needs
0: If you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? um you know i think
1: i think that there's a i mean this seems very idealistic but i do think people should figure out how to develop a, a real sense of empathy um in the sense that uh you know, an author uh, I like a, a, a lot, uh, Ronald Dworkin, who's a late philosopher and legal scholar, talked about the idea of equality as equality of concern. He said, "What is what is what do you want your political system to to look like? Well, it should have equal concern for every person, you know, who's mm-hmm. who's uh, within that that jurisdiction." And I think. If we could sort of bring ourselves to equal concern and ask ourselves deep down, you know, what does that imply, you know, for for individuals in a variety of circumstances, uh, we might possibly develop some some greater empathy for folks who, you know, you look at somebody who's homeless or somebody who's a recent undocumented immigrant who's sort of struggling to to make a a life for themselves here and. Um, It's not going to solve all the policy problems, but I do do sort of sense that that people have been unable to sort of step back and put themselves in in other Mm -hmm. folks' shoes. And I'm sure we need, those of us who are sort of progressive types like me, need to do the same for some of the, you know, the middle America Trump voters who have been struggling themselves Mm -hmm. and try to interpret uh, what's going on in their world in a a way that, you know, we can speak to those kind of, to to a real concern for each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, good luck with that but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that would just...
0: yeah. and finally what does an ideal saturday look like for you
1: oh let's see an ideal saturday uh well y- you could ask me sunday because sunday i always go to my local farmer's market so okay. that's always good because then i buy the food i'm gonna cook for the rest of the week so that's always nice and then mm-hmm. head out maybe for a walk up in the hills uh, look at some some flowers. Uh, I've been struggling recently to find some good venues to hear live music. Mm. Uh, in particular I'm a big jazz fan and it's a little bit thin here in the South Bay finding mm. good uh, live jazz. But if, uh, if there's something like that around, that's a great way to cap off a Saturday mm. in, in my opinion. So, so that would be, yeah, uh, buy some food, get out for a hike and, uh, get out and hear some music.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this interview. Well, thank you. appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. You can subscribe to Voices of Santa Clara on the iTunes podcast app. You can visit VoicesOfSantaClara.com for interview transcripts, and you can like the Facebook page. Special thanks to Miles Elliott for the music. Thank you for listening, and have a nice day.